0: It is good to be back with you last, uh, well, last Sunday we were in St. Louis worshiping with some uh, uh, dear friends there. We, uh, we, had, we had kind of a two-part vacation. Um, we went to, to Utah. Most of you know that Donna and I spent 10 year, our first 10 years of married life in Utah, and we went to a dear friend of ours uh, uh, passed away, and her husband, we went to visit him and just spend some time. And um, we spent four days there, and honestly, so much had changed. I mean, my goodness, uh, you almost doubled the size of the city from when we were there. So just, there used to be a lot of space between buildings. Now there was just buildings in between all the other buildings. It's just crazy. But um, we, um, we serendipitously had a, a, a get-together with a bunch of people from the church that we had pastored at the time, the people that got together. We were having dinner one night with a couple, the dean, my, my, our friend that we were visiting, said, Hey, I, I saw Marie's was at the funeral and she put her, you know, she has her number in the, the guest book. So let me see if the, her and Joe want to get together for dinner. So we did. And she says, Oh, we'll, well, come over to our house tomorrow night if you can and we'll just invite whoever wants to come from the church to come over. And particularly, they had a lot of extended family members in, in the church. Um, and uh, so we got together the next night, which just happened to be my birthday. But. Uh, we got together, and about 20 folks showed up, some of them driving over an hour to get there, which was just shocking to us, I mean, like, why they would even bother, and um, uh, just in the kindness of God, they just began to reflect on the impact uh, that we had had in their lives over 30 years ago, and, and the fact that they still talk about it when they get together all the time, it's just... Things that just make you just think, what in the world? But the, the the kindness of the Lord to remind us that even that labor was not in vain. Though there were many things about it I'd love to change, but even that was not in vain. And God is good and kind. And then uh, we we flew sat last uh, Saturday before yesterday, you know, week before yesterday, from there to St. Louis, uh, where we visited parents and just had a, uh, you know, because our parents live. 45 minutes to an hour apart, depending on where you're at. It, we did a lot of driving. We spent a lot of time in the car going back and forth, but we had some really wonderful visits with uh, each of um, my dad, her dad, her mom um, in that time, sister and sister. And yeah, so it was a wonderful time. And uh, it, it was also wonderful to know that you were being fed God's word in good hands while we were gone. It was just awesome. And um, the team just keeps doing what it does, whether we're here or whether we're not, and that's uh, the goodness of God. Amen? Yeah. Um, if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to just be looking at, in particular, the first two verses, which I, if you're from here, you know that I generally take like whole chapters at a time, but I'm going to do two verses. And actually, I'm going to preach the gospel from these two verses. And there aren't two verses that you would normally think of. Hey, if I want to preach the gospel, where do I go? You might go John three sixteen, or maybe Romans 5, or a number of places you could go. But this is probably not on anyone's short list, or even their long list. But today, it is on my list, and, and I think you'll see why before we are finished that is the case. We're in a series called Imagining the Kingdom, uh, and the subtitle for this message is Restored Imitators of God. And uh, if you would join me in reading... Uh, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. I'll read from the NIV. Uh, It says, Follow God's example, therefore. Or more literally, Become imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray, if you would. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And ask that you would make yourself known through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. On the plane, coming back from St. Louis, we were actually, because of the hurricane, we were supposed to come back, kind of an all-day trip through Baltimore back down to Tampa. But of course, Tampa closed the airport, and so uh, Southwest said, well, you can just change your flight to anything that works to a nearby airport or another day, another time for no charge. So I went on there and found a direct flight to Sarasota the same day. It took me three hours of travel time, uh, including the time at the airport or whatever. So uh, it was a short trip. So we're, we're going, and, and uh, I watched a movie titled Glory. Now, I'd seen this movie years ago, but I had two hours to spend, well, two hours and 20 minutes of flight time to spend and was too tired to read without falling to sleep. and I can't sleep on a plane. So that's just misery, just doing this the whole time. It was a, it's, a, it's a 1989 film with a young, rather young, Denzel Washington, Matthew Broderick, and a not-quite-so-old Morgan Freeman. Uh, um, <clears throat> it's the story of the first black infantry division in the Civil War, an excellent film about a tragic history, but that's not why I mention it this morning. The title, Glory. For a war movie captures the sense of what we as human beings today view as glory in a fallen world. Another w- war movie, Paths of Glory, or in the literary world, uh, Herman Wook's, uh The, Glo- the Glory, uh, McKinley Cantor's Glory for Me, both books about war. All of these capture the same distorted vision of glory. Glory is that which is obtained by triumph over enemies. Even sports glory is about triumphing over opponents. For others, glory is about wealth and power, which is not all that different since wars are fought over money. This is not how God made it in the beginning. Not how glory was to be obtained. In the beginning, God made humans in the image and glory of God. God, Glory was reflected by humans as we bore God's image or Imitated him. Paul tells the Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Note the connection between glory and image. The glory of Christ who is the image of God. It is the gospel of the glory of the King who is the image of God. That was right after he had said a few verses earlier, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold the glory of the God, man, king, the Lord, we are transformed into the same image. From glory to glory. We are transformed as we imitate Him. From glory to glory. We are to seek glory, but not through war or triumph or wealth. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said, The glory of God is a living human being. The glory of God is a living human being. Being. I believe this truth is central to the purpose of the gospel. James K.A. Smith writes The gospel is how we learn to be human. The gospel is how we learn to be human. It's not mere semantics that we now use the word glory for one of the most inglorious experiences of human activity war. It is directly connected to the fall. This false glory comes because of our being children of rage, as it was put in Ephesians 2, verse 3. True glory comes when, because of God's great love for us, He adopts us as children in Christ and then transforms us into His image and likeness. In the grand drama of the gospel, which begins in Genesis climaxes in the Christ event, and culminates in His return to rule in person. Our text is all about our response to the gospel. If repent means, as it does, to change how we think and live, then these verses explain what repentance looks like. Today I want to zero in on these verses, exploring why the imitation of God is intrinsic to the gospel, and in particular, our response to it. We'll explore this under four headings. Created for imitation, rejection of imitation, Christ the imitating king, and imitators of the king. Those are our four headings. We'll begin under created for imitation. Humans were created to rule God's kingdom by imitating him. You see, Genesis was not written for the benefit of Cain and Abel. That shouldn't surprise you, since Cain and Abel didn't have the book of Genesis, right? They're in it, but it wasn't written then. It was not written for Noah's children or Abram. It was written for the Israelites after their exodus from Egyptian slavery. Now, that might seem like a silly trivia point, but it's not. When we read a book of the Bible, we should first ask, who was the first audience? Which tells us something about why it might have been written, right? The story which the people of that day, the day the Israelites had left Egypt, the story which they lived by in the ancient Near East, how they imagined the world to work, was that people were created by the gods in order to work the earth and produce food for the gods. Humans were slaves for the gods. Genesis enters that narrative and says, nope, that's not it. It's different than that. It's a counter story of that, in fact, because in the Genesis account, God is a servant king who took a chaotic, lifeless world and turned it into a life-sustaining environment for creatures he would make, animals of every kind. Among those creatures were humans, which he placed in a garden of abundance, which he had made for them. He put the humans in charge of the garden, instructing them to work it and take care of it. They had been made in the image and likeness of God. Humans were made to imitate the servant king as servant rulers who would expand Eden to the ends of the earth for all creation. Fill the earth and subdue it. What does it mean to be in God's image and likeness? The nations worshipped images, idols, But God's people were forbidden to make such images or replicas of God. These idols of God were forbidden to them. He would not be represented by something which could not speak, could not see, well, could not do anything for that matter. Ancient kings, who were thought to be gods too, would place such replicas of themselves or representations of themselves throughout their kingdoms. These idols or images of the king meant that particular God king ruled there. They wanted, or I'm sorry, they warned people entering in that this king rules here, but they could not act. They could remind them, but they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't speak, they couldn't see. Well, God would only be represented by humans, which could speak, and see, and act, just like Him. Imitators. You see, God's image wouldn't be just a a, a flat image that, oh, this this image can't do anything. It just represents Him. No, God's image would be people who can act, and do, and see, and, and touch. Because why? Because to know God, you have to know what He's like. You have to know what he does. You, can't, he's not, you don't know him by looking at him. You don't even know him by just studying him. You have to know how he behaves. What he's like. What is his nature. And so he creates humans to reflect that in his world. Humans were given the task to rule over the earth on God's behalf. This same servant king who created a paradise for his people called his people to be like him. To serve the rest of creation, displaying the generosity of God. To bear God's image, then, is to imitate Him. Because you can't image one without acting like Him, the way God has designed it. Now, if we're going to bear God's image, what does that look like? Well, Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4. He said, "...be completely humble." And gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. That would be imaging God. Later he says it's to put off falsehood and speak truthfully, to reconcile quickly when angered, to do honest work in order to share with others, to use our words to build others up, to put away bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, to be kind and compassionate to one another and to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. Why? Because this is what God is like. The uniqueness of our God produces uniqueness of lives. The uniqueness of our God will produce a uniqueness in how we live. The 115th Psalm makes this point regarding idols. It says, Of the idols of the nations, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk nor can they utter a sound with their throats. But then listen to verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Note the principle. You become like what you worship. Be careful what you worship. You become like what you worship. Fast forward to the Greek era. And you have Zeus, as one author, Zoe Marchetti, Marchetti um, put it in the Legacy of the Butterflies. Since we start learning of Greek mythology, since we started learning of Greek mythology, we have heard tales of gods like Zeus abducting and raping many women at will, including his own daughters. Throughout the centuries, history has shown that reality is really no different, with those enjoying a self-imposed godlike status using their positions of power to exploit women whenever they felt like it. If that's the kind of God you worship, then it's fine. You become like what you worship. But we worship a God who is different than any other God. He is a servant king, unlike any kind of king. We become like what we worship. Imitation is one of the key words for discipleship in the New Testament. A good test of whether we love God is to look and see if we imitate Him. You know the saying, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Or we could say imitation is the highest form of praise. Indeed. If you want to know what people worship, observe their lives. It will tell what they worship. Imitation is image-bearing. Image-bearing begins with the gospel because... Among other reasons, the gospel tells us what God is like. That leads to our second heading, rejection of imitation. Rejection of imitation. Humans tried to be God rather than represent God. You see, humans were created to rule within God's kingdom by imitating him, but rejected that rule and invaded God's kingdom trying to build their own kingdoms. We read in Genesis 3, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. If imitating God is the essence of image-bearing and therefore righteousness and true holiness, and if it is rooted in our love for Him, we imitate what we worship, then the essence of sin is rooted in our distrust of God. The essence of sin is rooted in our distrust of God. And whatever is not of faith is sin, we are told. So, notice what the serpent attacked in his first temptation, and truly in all temptation, God's goodness. First, he asked with implication, Did God forbid everything? God won't let you have any fun. God said you can't eat from any of these trees? No, it's not actually what he said at all. But he starts with this question that has the implication that God is holding out on you. And then secondly, he declares, quite, quite directly, God is holding out on you. He's tricking you and keeping you from true fulfillment. If, if you eat, you're not going to die. Actually, you're going to become like him. You're going to replace God with yourself, in effect. What are the effects of sin? So they, they sin, but what are the effects of sin? It's important to clarify something. That, that I said I was going to preach the gospel, but what, what I'm not going to do is start with, here, here's the problem. Sin is the problem. And the problem with sin is that it creates a gap between you and God. Okay, And so Jesus had to come and die to bridge the gap. Now, if that's our version of the gospel, Fine. It's got truth in it. The problem is, is all the gospel does is fixes your relationship with God. End of story. I'd like to suggest that's not a full gospel. Because that makes the gospel primarily about you or me, and not about God's reign. It reduces the cross to accomplishing this one thing. But if we start with the biblical story, we discover that sin does indeed separate us from God, all of us, and as a result, it does much more. Sin prevents us from living fully human, and the cross reveals what it means to be truly human. Sin's effects are total. Sin's effects are personal, yes. Social, yes. Cosmic, yes. All of the above. Adam and Eve hid from God, and we discover that their relationship got really messed up. Well, that was both personal and then social, the relationship with each other. Cain murdered Abel, denying responsibility for his brother. That's social. Violence became the central description of humanity by Genesis 6. And then finally, it's rather cosmic. The earth was destroyed and all life on it because of human violence, i.e. sin. Humanity ceased to care for the earth and make it a garden to the ends of the earth. Greed. Lust and hatred replaced imitation and image bearing with violence to all that God created. The same greed, lust, and hatred drives how humans treat each other and the rest of God's creation to this day. The effects of sin are total personal, social, cosmic, all of the above. A true gospel, a gospel worth anything, must therefore address sin's personal, social, and cosmic effects. It must restore us to being imitators of God. The essence of sin is the human rejection of what God created us to be, image bearers or imitators, representatives of his good rule. Sin is living in contrast in opposition to image-bearing or imitation of God. Paul says it this way, All have sinned and fallen short, or literally have a deficit of the glory of God. All have sinned and have a deficit of the glory of God. In other words, we're not image-bearing. We've all failed to bear God's image. We have a deficit, and therefore we're not reflecting the glory of God. Humanity, Jew, and Gentile have failed to display the glory of God as image-bearing imitators, representatives of His rule. And what is God's answer to this crisis? That leads to our third point, Christ the imitating King. Jesus was the perfect image-bearer, or we could say imitator. You see, in the grand drama of the gospel, God was rejected as king by Adam and Eve, And Israel, later, 2 Samuel 8, they rejected God as king. We also see in Psalm 2 that the rulers of the world, the kings of this age, the very kings that humans asked for, rage against God and His rule. The world needed a flawless human king who could restore God's glory amid humanity's brokenness. The world needed a flawless human king who could restore God's glory amid humanity's brokenness. Then creation could be ruled by humans properly again. And God would receive the glory that is his due. Proper human rule is servant rule. It's lay down your life rule. It isn't amassing to self, but freely giving what is received. Freely giving what is received. You see, God's answer to human rebellion, to anti-image bearers, was to send his son as the perfect human king, the perfect image bearer. Perfect because he was God. As both God and human, he could restore true human rule of the world. He displays the image of God perfectly. He was the perfect imitator, image bearer. He did nothing except that he first saw the Father do it, he tells us in John's Gospel. He passed the wilderness test that Adam failed and Israel failed. God said of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He refused to attain a kingdom by bowing to Satan as Adam had. He trusted the goodness of the Father, even though it meant suffering. He imitated the Father by laying down his life for us. He was the consummate servant king, just like the Father was in Genesis 1. Now back to our text. Become imitators of God, therefore, as dearly dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as the king, Christ. See, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. It's this promised coming divine human king. Jesus, the person, is The Christ is one of the most succinct summaries of the gospel in Scripture. It's In the book of Acts, it's the common summary of what the gospel is. That this person, Jesus, this man who went about doing these things, he is God's divine human king. Therefore, he has a kingdom. And if we want to be in that kingdom, we come under him. Amen? Become imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as the king, Christ, loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now that brings us back to chapter 4 in Ephesians, verses 20 through 24. I'm going to read from the ESV, modified a little as I've done on the previous verse. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Or that is not the way you learned about the king. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, the person, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. You see, this person, Jesus, happened to be the promised coming Messiah, king, ruler. This guy was that guy. He's the king. And when you learned about this king, this guy Jesus, who you found was the truth about this king, not what you expected, but indeed he is that king, he taught you to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through its deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, your thinking, to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. This is, again, repentance. Change how you think, and therefore how you live. Jesus is the Christ. And if you learned about the King as the truth is in Jesus, you were taught to live by, in the King by putting on a new man. Who's the new man? Jesus Christ. The new creation, resurrected from the dead. The essence of imitating God is doing so by imitating the perfect imitator, Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because he's the perfect imitator, and if you imitate me as I imitate Christ, then you're imitating God himself. We were predestined for adoption, according to Ephesians chapter 1, in Jesus Christ. And now that we are adopted, we are to become imitators of God as dearly loved children. And that leads to our fourth and final point, imitators of the king. Imitators of the king. As adopted children, we are to imitate the imitating son. A young mother wrote, She said, I I stayed with my parents for several days after the birth of our first child. One afternoon, I remarked to my mother that it was surprising that our baby had dark hair since both my husband and I are fair. She, the mother of this new mother, (laughs) said, Well, your daddy has black hair. But mama, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. With an embarrassed smile, the now grandmother said, the most wonderful words I've ever heard, I always forget. God always forgets that we were adopted. He just expects us to act like His children. It is. The problem is that we forget we're His children. You see, remember... The fall left it so that all have sinned and fall short or have a deficit of the glory of God. The gospel restores us to be a people who display the glory of God. How? How does it do that? As we all contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are turned into worshiping imitators. Where do we behold the Lord's glory most clearly? In Jesus in the Gospels. That's where we behold Him most clearly. Paul, I think in our text, when he says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, I think he's inferencing Matthew 5, verses 44 through 48. And I think that because we have a lot of evidence that those verses were talked a lot about in the earliest church, you know, documents and connected to imitating God. So, I think that's quite possible that he is. Jesus spoke of imitating the father. He said, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. And then literally the word haughty there is since, or because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, Love your enemies and praise for those who persecute you because that's imitating your father who does good. He loves the evil and the good, even his enemies, in other words. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. The Lord imitate him. Luke's account, where he in the Sermon on the Plain has this same uh, this this same discussion, where where Matthew has to be perfect, Luke has to be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Why? Because that's the kind of thing he's talking about when he's talking about perfection here. We act as the children we've been adopted to be when we love our enemies. We are acting as God's children when we love our enemies. Why? Because our Father loves His enemies. We are not to follow the same narrative as the tax collectors, which is money is the answer to everything. That's why they were tax collectors. The early church fathers emphasized the importance of imitation of the father as his adopted children. Cyprian, as an example, preached a sermon which, though it was not preserved in its entirety, his biographer made notes during that sermon. And after expositing the text, which is that text we just read from Matthew 5, he exhorted the people that because they were children of a loving father, they should imitate him by loving their enemies. Every time, think of it, every time we do not love our enemies, we're failing to bear the image of God. We're not living for what we were made to be every time we fail to love our enemies, which, by the way, in my case is way too often, just for the record. I find it really easy to love people that like me. I find it really hard to love people that don't. Maybe you're different than that. But I'm not. And so I have to work on this by the grace of God. We are rejecting His rule if we call them fools or idiots or if we fail to do good to them as our Father does. I was struck over the past few weeks how many times I've been in the presence of people who profess Christ that were referring to our political leaders as idiots, fools, stupid, etc., at all. When I occasionally would ask people if they are comfortable as a Christian doing that, I usually just get a blank stare. As if, what would that have to do with being a Christian? Well, maybe a lot. Everything which Paul calls us to do in the letter to the Ephesians is rooted in our adoption back into his family as image bearers or imitators of God to the world. This is what it means to walk in righteousness and holiness, to represent his kingdom to the rest of creation, our brothers and sisters. The earth as a place to be made a garden full of fruit to the ends of the earth. Why do we need to imitate God? Because we need the restoration of humans as image bearers. So that creation will no longer lack God's glory. So that uh, the rule of God might come. O Lord, your kingdom come as your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The goal of disciple making, and hence the goal of the local church is that we would be transformed into the image of our King, who is the perfect image of God. It is so that we will become, as we were created to be, imitators of God. There's a historical fiction called The Nurse's Secret. It's a great read, by the way. It's set in the 1880s, New York City. The main character, Una Kelly, a master pickpocketer, who had been on the streets since she was a young girl. Death of mom and a drunken father. Put her on the streets and I think it was the age of 12 or 13, New York City. So yes, she became a pickpocketer and actually one of the best. Really good, as pickpocketers go. But she was falsely accused of murder and was about to spend the rest of her life in a prison of horrific conditions. After escaping during her transport to Blackwell's Island Prison... She had to come up with a way to hide, and that's when she saw an ad for the Bellevue Nursing School, the first nursing school in the country. With a little help, with some false ID and papers that she needed, uh, and a great acting job, she got in. The thing is, once she began doing the work of helping the sick and the weak, though contrary to how she thought of herself, over time it changed her nature. Eventually, she discovered that she loved the work, and it was actually her new identity. This is what she was made to be. When we begin imitating God, imitating our image-bearing king, living the Sermon on the Mount, it will actually seem contrary to the nature that we've been trained in. But as we do, we will discover that it aligns us to our true nature, our true identity. In closing, just a a couple of thoughts. The call to be image bearers for our king, imitators, makes the topic of how we live as believers about God and really not about us. You see, we often think about, well, how we're supposed to live, we're just talking about us. No, actually, how we're supposed to live is all about God because we're His image bearers. We're imitators of Him. So it's really about what is He like? Who is He? And the more we contemplate what He is like and who He is as revealed in the gospel, the more we'll see who we are and how we are to live, therefore. It has nothing to do with merit, earning our way to heaven. It has everything to do with bringing heaven to earth in our midst. In truth, it begins a lot like when a child wants to help dad or mom mow the yard. They ask if, well, can I do it? To which you say, sure, and you get them behind the mower and you put their hands on the mower and then you put your arms around them and you walk behind them pushing the mower and you get it done. And in truth, yes, they're really not doing much of anything, but they're being formed. And one day they'll be able to do it all by themselves. They gradually learn how to mow. And we, with the aid of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit within us, Christ in us, He helps us do things that we would never do. But over time, they become second nature to us because we're being formed into His likeness. Amen? Amen. Rankin Wilborn, in his book, Union with Christ, wrote this. He said, One way to think about the Christian life, not the only way, but a powerful and too little used way, is that believing the gospel means having your imagination taken captive and reshaped by a new story. Reshaped by a new story. Having your imagination taken captive and reshaped by a new story. How does this calling to be imitators, to be image bearers of God as king, how does it change how you imagine your life? You see, We've all had our imaginations taken captive by the world's story. Whether the story of progress or greed or glory as triumph over our enemies or sex is the all-satisfying source of happiness or some other story that we've believed. We've all been taken captive, but the gospel sets us free with the truth. The true story of what we were made for. And some have had their imaginations shaped by what? might be called worm theology. Do you know what worm theology is? Worm theology is that uh, I'm just a sinner. I can't do anything pleasing to God. Nonsense. You were a sinner. You've been saved by grace. Now you're a new creation. You're a child of God adopted into His family. You're an image bearer of the King. If, as Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a living human... And by that he meant a truly living human, one living as God made them to be. Then this is what it means to be truly a living human, to be an imitator of our God, King. So I think James Smith was correct when he said the gospel is the way we learn to be human. Because in the gospel we learn what God is like so that we might be conformed to his image. We become like what we worship. Have you, have we been living in a truly human way? Have we been living in a truly human way? That's a question I want us to ponder as we pray this week, as we read our Bibles, as we contemplate God. Take that question with us. Have we been living in a truly human way? And if so, great, how so? And if not what needs to change how do we change that so that we can live in a truly human way let's pray heavenly father show us why you made us help us to see who you've made us to be and to live in that by your Spirit within us. May it be that we have truly learned about the King as the truth is in Jesus, the one who is King. In Jesus' name, amen.